Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Noel. Our compatriot Matt is on adventures and will return. They called me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Alexis, codename Doc Holiday Jackson. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. It's uh, the top of the week, so we are exploring strange news and uh we've got some we've got some strange stuff going on here we've got uh we had a lot of response to our earlier reports about cargo cults and prince philip so our adventures today involve uh royalty they involve ufos they involve democracy or the lack thereof uh we're we're going in many directions with today's show noel uh, i think we'll do matt proud but my first question for you is, uh, I, I saw a headline when we were researching ahead of this uh, that, that you hit the team to about Prince Philip. And this is something I did not know about the late UK royal. Yeah. In addition to, you know, dabbling in casual racism, it turns out that he's super into UFOs. Who knew? Yeah, he also looks like that character from that one Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode that everyone likes where nobody can talk. And they're these like creepy, like sinister dudes in suits that say, you know, shush or whatever. I think that was just called Hush, actually. Um, but yeah, creepy looking guy. Uh, very, very problematic guy. Um, I also found out that the name of his biography is the like driest name in the history of biographies. It's called Prince Philip. The turbulent early life of the man who married Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, that yeah, that, that, that sounds like a real page turner. Um, but uh, the gentleman Philip Ede, uh, who wrote this biography or worked on this biography with Prince Philip, um, apparently found uh, the conversations going in somewhat unusual directions. Um, he, uh, it came after he had um, worked previously on a, a book about uh, some prominent UFO experts or UFOlogists, if you will. Um, and this was actually after World War II. So this is like super old school, you know, UFO talk. And Prince Philip, it turns out, 
has a massive collection of books on UFOs, uh, subscribes to a British quarterly magazine called Flying Saucer Review. Mm-hmm. That seems so antiquated. The idea of Flying Saucer Review. Uh, it seems like the name itself would make you know people not take it super seriously. You no think one calls so? them flying saucers know. anymore. <laughs> Add, adding review to things makes them feel a nah, little more academic. Uh, that's a good point, Ben. That author, by the way, that we're talking, there are two Phillips in this story, I think. There's Prince Philip and then the author, Philip Ede, right? Mm-hmm. E-A-D-E. And yeah, in, in, in the process of uh, researching, you know, this book, he found out all this stuff. Um, and obviously, as we know, by the way, this is there's a great article that runs down a lot of this. There's a few, actually. Um, it seems like it just came out after uh, the the Duke of Edinburgh's passing. Um, but yeah, the Vice has, has an article that kind of goes through a, a lot of this stuff um, that I definitely used as a primary research source for this, uh, this conversation. Um, but it's super interesting, man. Cause like, especially considering the way he behaved uh, toward those whole cargo cult, uh, situations, you know, like kind of leaning into it a little bit and, you know, posing for selfies and all of that. Right, Ben? Yeah. So we, uh, I want to thank everybody who wrote in about that earlier story not everybody had the same perspective but i think we can all agree regardless of your opinions about prince philip or the monarchy in general uh the people who are part of the royal family lead very different and oftentimes as odd as it may sound very demanding lives like they're not in coal mines you know they're not uh stealing stripping copper from abandoned (laughs) warehouses but they are held to some rigid social standards. They're required to uh, do all sorts of diplomatic functions and so on. Uh, With a story like this, what I think is really interesting is that it's not one of those things. It's something that the guy was clearly personally into. Mm -hmm. And I get the feeling, checking out this Vice article and a couple of other things, I get the feeling that he was the kind of person who if you were at one of those diplomatic functions or if you just saw him around the house and you wanted to strike up a conversation, I bet the best icebreaker was, uh, you know, what do you think about UFOs, dude? You couldn't call him dude because he's the Duke of Edinburgh. But Sire, my lord, my liege, what do you call a guy like that? Buckaroo? Your, your, your duke ship? Totally. Yeah, <laughs> that would be it. Yeah, at the very least, I think he would appreciate the the uh, gall. The you know? audacity of it. Yeah. The, the outright audacity. Um, and and, and you, you're right, Ben. Like these, you know, we, we've talked about the royal family and people have opinions. And it's obviously a great source of like kind of reality show-esque entertainment for many people. And they get a lot of flack because they're sort of these figureheads that don't, you know, have a lot of direct uh, influence over policy, but they certainly have indirect influence over policy, uh, as is evidenced uh, by the story that apparently um, Prince Philip uh, was always talking about UFOs to his equerry, equerry, uh, which is an officer uh, within the royal household, I guess sort of like a valet, you know, but like more like uh, official. And this gentleman has the most British name of all time, Sir Peter Horsley. Uh, and he went on to become the deputy commander in chief of the Royal Air Force Strike Command, which sounds really epic. Um, but apparently after Queen Elizabeth was, uh, was cor- coronated, is, is that... Is that okay? Can you say coronated? Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever heard that word used in that form. After her coronation, um, in 1953, he privately asked Horsley, or dare I say kind of instructed Horsley, to look into, quote, credible accounts of alien encounters or UFO sightings. Um, and he, Prince Philip himself, is quoted as saying uh, that there are many reasons that extraterrestrials exist because there is so much evidence from reliable witnesses. And he said this like a long time ago, way before any of this disclosure stuff. What do you think? Do you think there's like information sharing between the U.S. and British government or that there's British intelligence uh, about the alien encounters, just like we have you know, some of the stuff that's starting to kind of trickle out? I know you generally work with horses, old boy, but go do yes. some digging and tell me about these extraterrestrials. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because at that level, what you'll see is that 
information sharing can become pretty informal. So there are formal classified information sharing agreements, especially in the Anglosphere or country between countries in the Anglosphere. But also, if you're Prince Philip and you're on good terms with a U.S. president or the president of some other country, you will be at a dinner party somewhere and you can just say, what's your take? On UFOs, what do, what do you guys got? You see anything interesting? It doesn't have to be the president. It could be the director of national intelligence, and then they could conceivably, off the record, share some stuff, have a conversation. Technically, that would probably be illegal, but I'm sure it's happened before. And I'm not surprised because we have to remember Prince Philip grew up and and lived in a time when. Uh, especially like leading up to World War II, post-World War II, people were intensely interested in the idea of unidentified flying objects. So I, I think it makes sense. Also, it's interesting because I wonder, and this may be a question for our British listeners, I wonder how much he would have known about classified uh, classified aircraft research in, in the UK. Would it be need-to-know basis? Does he count as someone who needs to know? Can he just pull rank and learn everything? Or how compartmentalized is their information? Also, points for nominative determinism. The equerry is, uh, back in the day, the equerry was in charge of the horses, I believe. And this guy's name is Horsley. Oh, yeah, exactly. Of course, that makes sense. Equine. Yeah, that's I didn't even think about that, Ben, the equerry. Um, but why is he the why is he the UFO guy? Or does Prince Philip? My question is, does Prince Philip believe that horses and UFOs are related? Because if so, that's very interesting. And I want to hear his take on it. Oh, I'm sure he's got many takes that we'll never hear. But I'm fascinated by this uh, biography. I'm sure there's some interesting Quotes in there. Um, it, it certainly seems like it went in an unconventional direction. But uh, this guy, Horsley, is quoted uh, quite a few times, in, you know, publicly talking about this, um, where he he has a really great uh, quippy kind of little British wit about him. There's no question. Um, he is quoted in saying that uh, Prince Philip had him invite individuals to Buckingham Palace to talk about their encounters with extraterrestrial life or UFOs. Um, And uh, he said that he and uh, Philip thought this was a, a, quote, method as effective as any truth serum because no one would dare uh, tell a lie in front of the royal family. I think the the phrase, the... Excellent Vice article uh, Jalissa Casterdale uses is chat in front of yes. a member of the royal family. Which That's I- just right. And I, I actually was, was going to mention that, too, because I thought that was maybe Horsley himself talking, which sounded like so uh, super British and mm. like and, and witty. But now I realize this is totally just creative license by the uh, by the writer here. But excellent phrase. And I'm definitely going to add that to my vocabulary. And we'll pause for a word from our sponsor, then we'll return with more strange news. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, 
But that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. It's funny, too, because I think, I believe this is the direction we're going with Horsley, but I think it's so fascinating how often the public forgets that people, even people in high positions of worldly power, are still just human and have hobbies and eccentricities and quirks. Uh, Like, Horsley was far from a skeptic, to my understanding. He believed in Uf- he believed in aliens, he believed in UFOs, he also believed in telepathy, and he actually believes he met an alien named Mr. Janice. Like the two Oh, that's guy. right. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I was just talking about that with uh, with our friend Victor last night about whether it's pronounced Janice or Janus. I think the I think it's the, Janus. Uh, I just like I, the soft A. No, I, I, the, the argument was uh, the, that he thinks it's Janus, and I, and I definitely have heard it pronounced both ways, but I always say it Janus, too, because I like the soft day as well, Ben. Uh, but yeah, Mr. Uh, Janus, or Janus, if you want it that way, um, was like this, apparently this dude who is supposedly had had like an encounter with uh, an alien or, you know, cause he, he was like vetting people. He, he was basically like grooming and vetting these like UFO encounter people to come hang out at Buckingham palace. It was like a thing, I guess, whether, I don't know, you could argue it was for his own amusement, Prince Phillips, or if it was genuinely, he was like a, you know, the truth is out there kind of vibe. Uh, but he obviously took it pretty seriously and had this guy go out and find these people with these stories to share. And Horsley said, um, basically said that the guy had like borderline telepathic abilities and like, you know, had this uncanny ability to read his thoughts. Um, And he uh, is a quote from Horsley. He wrote, "Uh, I asked him why he wanted to meet Prince Philip. And he replied, Prince Philip is a man of great vision, a person of world renown and a leader in the realm of wildlife and the environment. He is a man who believes strongly in the proper relationship between man and nature, which will prove of great importance in future galactic harmony. Whew! 
And then, you know, Horsley goes on to say that he like had these kind of dead eyes, you know, and he believed himself to be some sort of extraterrestrial being or extra dimensional, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He told the daily mail, uh, he didn't say he was a visitor from another planet, but I had that impression. <laughs> I believe he was here to observe us. I never saw him again. And there's not, uh, other, other than his account, Horsley's account. I don't believe there, uh, there are any other real traces of Mr. J. So we don't know the, veracity of Horsley's statement. I don't think he has a reason to lie, but also I, when I see quotes like the, the longer one that you read from Mr. J, I don't believe those are, um, that's a little too clean. I think at the very least Horsley is maybe paraphrasing from memory. Uh, but the evidence here is the implication (laughs) that the vibe that Horsley got was he was an alien and, you know, he said he's here to observe us. I never saw him again. I think that's a fascinating story. And I'm not saying telepathy is impossible, but I am saying cold reading is very well proven. It is possible to, like a lot of people, no matter how you feel about psychic powers, there are people who purposely pretend to have psychic powers and they're really just doing a cold read on you, right? Totally. Like, I feel like you may have, been in love at some point with someone who was gone. It's a, it did their name. It's a, it's a war. It's a man. It's a man. Uh, his name is Gary, Gary. His name is Gary. And then people are like, Whoa, that's amazing. And this guy, you know, I'm just saying, we don't know how this idea of reading thoughts goes about, or because I, I don't know if there were, more specific examples. I think Daily Mail, that's from 97, right? Uh, right. So he talks a little bit more about that, but I, I didn't see I didn't see something like where Horsley said, I tested yeah. him. I thought of a number. He told me the well, number kind of thing. Uh, that's also such a Daily Mail thing to print, isn't it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like utter, you know, I'm sure they, the headline was like, Prince Philip meets alien, you know, or whatever. Uh, or, or Prince Philip's best horseman meets alien uh, in London flat. Um but apparently this obsession, I don't know, we, I don't think we have enough information to call it an obsession quite yet, but it certainly was a, a, an enthusiasm for all things um, extraterrestrial. Came, uh, he kind of came honestly by it, um, was, was encouraged by his uncle, all the best British names in this story, Lord Lewis Dickey Mountbatten, um, who, according to the, uh, the Vice article, is in that show The Crown, which I have not seen. Um, but I, I keep hearing, you know, it's, it's such a part of the conversation right now. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm missing out a little bit, but he is the one who got him into flying saucer review in the first place. Cause he himself was a subscriber. Uh, and he wrote a letter. Um, I almost want to say it was like two flying saucer review. It's a little unclear, but anyway, and in, in some correspondence, I would love the idea of like, you know, British Royals writing in to like a flying saucer review magazine, like in those, you know, at the end, they always have like letters from, from uh, readers and stuff like at the end of comic books. Um, but he said that he believed that anyone who was piloting these alien, these alien craft, uh, again, very specific, uh, like he's referring to something that we are not privy to, uh, had to have come from another planet. Um, and his, there's a quote from the letter. He says, Martians, Venusians, uh, Jupiterians, or what have you. Uh, that, that's, that's who was piloting these alien craft. Uh, he says, why should life on another planet with entirely different conditions in any way resemble life on our planet? That's a really good point. Uh, Lord Lewis Dickey Mountbatten. It's something that always comes up in, in conversations about aliens where it's like, how silly are we to think that like some magical gold LP that we send out into space is going to be of any use to another alien civilization? They're not going to have the technology that we have. They're not one-to-one. They've, if they've got their own thing, they're probably in their own little technological bubble, either like super advanced or maybe, you know, just completely different terms and, uh, you know, equipment, like physiologically, right? Well, that's that's why the primary goal in alien contact or attempts to communicate is 
math-based, primarily physics, fundamental rules of the game of the universe as we know it that don't change. Uh, that's that's uh, some of the stuff that's inscribed on on those discs that you mentioned. It's funny because the human species is so self-obsessed that there there is a lot of stuff being sent out there that's just probably not going to make sense at all to a non-human intelligence without a ton of context. But I, you know, the more I think about it, looking into this a little bit before we recorded, it went, what's the line between like a hobby or enthusiasm and obsession? Uh, this This also seems to be something that has a little bit of nostalgia to the prince because he and his uncle corresponded and, and chopped it up so often about UFOs. Uh, so there's there's a social bond there. And there's also, unfortunately, there's, there's a little bit of evidence that members of um, the British scientific elite saw these guys as kind of batty when... Uh, when Montbatten wrote to the Ministry of Defense's chief scientific advisor, a guy named Lord Solly Zuckerman, which is mm -hmm. fun to say. That uh, sure is. Zuckerman said, here's what I think of UFOs. They're in the same category as a ghost or the Loch Ness Monster because there's no evidence that any of them actually exist. And maybe this was somewhat um, a little bit of cold water for Montbatten because he later, according to according to the records, seemed to gradually drift away from interest in UFOs to other interests. First off, you know, I love self-directed research. I love when people have passions and interests. And, you know, I think it's fair to assume that these guys would have had the juice, the, the pull to learn more than the average UFO enthusiast. But was there ever any like revelation that they disclosed in their lifetimes? Yeah, I mean, there certainly were, uh, they had some pretty specific theories, uh, specifically Mountbatten. Um, he, I sort of started off with him just saying like, you know, what is generally considered probably a pretty progressive view on on what alien or extraterrestrial life might look like. Like you were saying, Ben, there, there would be very little frame of reference or recognition between, you know, humanoid forms and languages and constructs and, you know, what would exist so so very far away and, and disconnected from us. Uh, but he, um, I believe this is a conversation he was having with, um, with uh, Prince Philip, but talked about, like, I mean, he really gets into some, some serious detail where he says that uh, these creatures might be gaseous or circular or very large. They certainly can't breathe. I mean, that's right out. Uh, and they may not have to eat. And I doubt if they have babies. Bits of their great discs may break away and grow into a new creature. If the human race wishes to survive, they may have to band together, I guess, against these gelatinous uh cubes from outer space. Um, I'm not trying to be dismissive. It's just really interesting. And I'm also kind of shocked that this, uh, this uh, chief science minister or whatever, uh, Lord Solly Zuckerman had the stones to go up against the Royal family like that and openly, I guess, discredit him or, you know, at the very least kind of neg his whole thing. Right. Well, he's um, just giving it. I, I would say he's just giving his opinion. He's paid to be a scientific advisor, so I suppose. But it just feels like that's tricky territory, you know. If you're really out openly criticizing a member of the royal family like that, it just it just seems a little ballsy. That's all. I see what you're saying, but you know, he's also of the upper class. He is a lord, yes. Uh, so he's got he's probably got a little more leeway in that regard. But it's you know. There is a good point about uh, the some of the description there when they say uh, life form might be possibly circular because if you if you imagine let's say a spacefaring species or you imagine something that somehow evolved in a vacuum of space right without the same kind of gravitational constraints terrestrial species will have then that radial symmetry makes sense. There's nothing incentivizing you to 
like pushing against you growing in a specific direction. So I, I could see that. I'm down for space jellyfish. I, I would not be surprised if a lot of, if they're somewhere out there in the universe, uh, there's more than one kind of life form that does look similar to uh, the forms we recognize in the deep oceans. I I just don't think reality is uh, creative enough <laughs> on the based on totally. the laws of physics to come up with brand new stuff if it doesn't have to. That's a good point, Ben. That's a good point. You know, Philip, uh, up till the day he died, presumably, um, never lost his uh, fervor for um, alien exploration. Um, and he apparently, uh, as recently as last summer, read a book about the Rendlesham Forest incident. Have we done an episode on this, Ben? I don't know the Rendlesham Forest incident, but apparently it's one of England's uh, most well-known UFO sightings. Uh, yeah, I don't remember if we have, but it's come up. It's one of those things I would call a phantom topic. A, it happened in December of 1980. Uh, if we haven't, if I haven't done a video on it, then yeah, we should definitely do an episode on it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but all this to say that, you know, he, he definitely up until the end was, was super into this stuff and, and didn't let any, uh, you know, back talking science people uh, dissuade him. Um, the writer of this vice piece uh, who you mentioned, Jess, uh, Jalissa Castradale, oh, a lot of cool names in this, made a really good point that like, Aside from this one, you know, science schmuck who, you know, kind of poured the cold water on uh, Lord, what is it, Bat Battenham? Uh, Bot Mount Batten, excuse me. Um, she points out that, you know, people of the upper crust, you know, who maybe have country estates and, uh, you know, are members of, of the royal family or adjacent, uh, at the very least, you know, that, that old, old, old moneyed, you know, British high society, when they talk about stuff like this, they're like praised for being open-minded and free thinking, you know, but when more like blue collar folks talk about it, they're, you know, asked politely to leave, uh, the Wendy's is <laughs> same as it ever it. was, you know, same the, as it uh, ever was the difference between being uh noted eccentric and a uh raging loon is it really comes down to social status and income. That's, that's the point I'm making earlier. When you hear, when you hear about very powerful people being very human, right. And for all the things that being very human means, uh, it's, it shouldn't be surprising. Like, I guarantee you, uh, everybody is weird on some level. And, and the people who look like they are in charge of the world or hold the reins of a country, uh, I hope everyone listening finds it reassuring to, to know this and hear this very well. They are just as weird as you, if not weirder, because oh. there are more opportunities uh, to, get, to get real eccentric. <laughs> More opportunities for weirdness and a lot of yes people surrounding you and kind of encouraging your every, you know, whim. Um, that That's a recipe for, for eccentricity, to be sure. But I, I thought this was a lot of fun uh, and an interesting way to remember uh, a, a, someone who history maybe hasn't quite settled in on, uh, you know, how, how we feel about this guy. Um, you know, his whole like racist comment that he kind of got like a quote unquote racist comment about, you know, talking to some, uh, well, yes, exactly. I, I think he didn't like, specifically use that word. He just asked, there's like some, some envoy or some diplomatic, uh, trip. He, he was, uh, th there was a group of indigenous people that performed some sort of, uh, you know, dance, uh, situation. And he just like very casually said, do you still throw spears at each other? Um, which is obviously, you know, super weird and problematic. But I actually found an article. I don't know how it came up, but it said uh, it was an article from ABC where one of the individuals uh, who he said this to felt that the comment was not racist. But I don't necessarily think it's always up to the, the person. Um, and it's so weird. That's why, again, I want to go circle back to the cargo cult thing, Ben, because he obviously had this weird there's a weird reverence towards this man from some, you know, indigenous people, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not uncommon. Uh, there, there was reverence from a specific indigenous community, but there reverent, there's reverence for all sorts of uh, celebrities or noted uh, political figures. There's another example I always think of, uh, 
I did I did some something on. I can't remember which show this was for. You know who's big in Paraguay? Rutherford Who? B. Hayes, 19th U.S. president. Weird. People love him there. There are statues. They celebrate uh, him on a yearly basis. Uh, they don't think he's a god. He's not a mythical figure, but he okay. is a national hero. So I can I can see um, just celebrity and renown. It's a, it's a very it's a very weird thing. I don't know what Rutherford B. Hayes thought of UFOs. I, I know nothing about him other than the fact that he's got a pretty memorable name, and, and that's about all I remember. Um, in this same ABC article, and then I know we got to move on. Um, and by the way, the the comment that, that Prince Philip made was it was an Australian visit uh, to Queensland, Australia, um, and he uh, the, the the one of the gentlemen he he said that to totally defended him and said, "Oh, he's a, he's a lovely man. He didn't mean anything by it." And um, and, and then goes on to really gush about the guy. Uh, and in Australia, he is he was and is still beloved and and large. Largely, it had to do with the fact that he was so open and uh, kind of free speaking and, and presumably free thinking uh, and, and would kind of just say whatever crossed his mind as opposed to the queen who is seen as being very, um, you know, closed off and, and formal. Uh, he was this is a quote from this uh, the way he was perceived by Australians, a historian um, who literally heard talk about specific specializations. Uh, she is a historian on royal visits to Australia. Um, and she said that he was famous, quote, for, for being more open than the very guarded queen. So in 1954, when he was young and fairly handsome, he was seen as dynamic, witty, and a breath of fresh air. All this kind of tracks. But uh, like I said, very, very interesting dude. A lot of kind of mixed messages around this guy over time. But... Uh, love the fact that he was a big UFO head. And so there we leave the story of the Duke of Edinburgh, a fellow UFO enthusiast. Uh, we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, uh, who may or may not be Illumination Global Unlimited, <laughs> and we'll be right back and half a world away. But we're staying on Earth for this next one. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we've returned. This is uh, an ongoing story that you may have heard mentioned in Western news uh, to varying degrees of specificity. It's also something you may have heard us mention in the course of earlier episodes. Our next piece of strange news is quite unfortunate, and it takes us to Myanmar. Myanmar is a country that doesn't hit the U.S. news too often. If you're the average resident of the U.S., you are probably most familiar with Myanmar through the story of the democracy activist Anyang Suu Kyi. Uh, Myanmar is, if you look at a map, it's directly to the left of Thailand, directly to the right of Bangladesh. It's it's between those two countries. It shares a border uh, with several other countries, including China. This has been um, a famously troubled, infamously troubled country for a long time. It's been ruled by a military junta for most of uh, our lifetimes, uh, for those of us making the show. And it's something we've talked about before, militaries and their responsibilities for function and stability of government, uh, which are usually outlined in a country's constitution. Here's what happened recently amid the pandemic. There was an, a, a, a time of what is often described as quasi-democracy. Russell Goldman, writing for the New York Times, has a great explainer piece on this. Uh, February 1st, there was a coup d'etat in the country, and it brought back full military rule. I I am the first to admit, I've dunked a little bit on Myanmar's military, uh, primarily because of their decision a number of years ago to move the country's capital based on the advice of an astrologer. That is... Yeah, it's a true story. And again, I think the last time I mentioned it, I was trying to be really fair and I was saying, hey, before you, before anybody looks down their collective noses at that decision, let's remember that U.S. presidents like Ronald Reagan have also taken advice from astrologers. So it's not it's not restricted to just one country. The military had been in power in Myanmar since 1962, and the period of quasi-democracy begins in 2011. So there was a long multi-generational history of this being a, a country ruled by a military. When democracy came into power in 2011, they were implementing reforms, parliamentary elections. It became very complicated very quickly. The trouble, the recent trouble began on November 8th. The National League for Democracy is the leading civilian party, and there were elections held on November 8th. National League for Democracy, NLD, won 83% of the vote, 83% of the seats in parliament. And what did the military do? 
They said it was a sham. They said it was a fraud. They said this was uh, a kangaroo court election-wise. They said that the National League for Democracy did not, in fact, win 83% of the seats. Um, And, of course, Aung San Suu Kyi is the head of that Democratic Party. She's been, as a result, the leader since 2015. She's like a real people's candidate, right? I mean, she's absolutely beloved, and it's almost like the military resents that kind of, you know, adoration of this individual who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, is a pretty interesting figure and, like, not not super problematic. I mean, I know all, all politicians have two sides or whatever, but it's my understanding that she very much was kind of a humanitarian uh, individual and someone who, you know, the adoration of the people kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, but unfortunately, it's it's a little, it gets a little complicated. Uh, when you say she's the people's candidate, that qualifies as long as those people are not Rohingya, which is the Muslim ethnic minority group uh, in Myanmar. Uh, the country launched a deadly campaign against this ethnic group, uh, and she supported it upon her release from house arrest. Oh, she was also locked up for years and years and years. Oh, yeah. uh, she defended this this campaign of brutality against the Rohingya uh, in like the International Court of Justice. So it wasn't just a throwaway comment in an interview. And a lot of her supporters said, this is really a pragmatic move to cooperate with the military because it will uh, accelerate the evolution toward full democracy. But then when the coup occurred on February 1st, it appeared that whatever cooperation or olive branch she had extended was not enough in their opinion. So here's what happened when when they said the November 8th elections were bogus. The military went to the country's Supreme Court and they said not only are these results fraudulent, But we are going to take action because it's our job as the military. We're going to surround the houses of governmental bodies with soldiers. Sounds troublingly familiar to some of the actions on January 6th, right? Although those were, you know, protesters or rioters, not paid soldiers. Totally. And I was I was um, remembering half of the story. She did have a uh, early kind of period as this golden, Mm -hmm. you know, um, human rights kind of beacon protesting against the regime that uh, was very poor with their human rights record, essentially, but then essentially went on to kind of become the thing that she hated. Right. Like that's sort of the, the complexity of this individual. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, the, you know, the, the closer you look at historical figures, uh, the more, well, you know, the more reputational warts you are likely to find. And that's kind of the case with uh, Prince Philip as well. You know, people at the top, again, are are just as human as everyone else. The military detained Aung San Suu Kyi, also President Yuen Mint, uh, also cabinet ministers, chief ministers of several regions, opposing politicians, writers, activists, they were locking people up left and right. It was the hottest new thing. Uh, The coup was pretty much announced to the public on the military-owned TV station, Mawadi TV. A news anchor there cited the Constitution, which had come into effect in 2008, and said, you know, the military can legally declare a national emergency, and this state of emergency that they have declared is going to stay in place for one year. After that point, the military took control of the communications infrastructure of Myanmar. They suspended most TV broadcasts. They canceled flights, international and domestic. I mean, this sounds this sounds sort of par for the course if you're thinking about it as another country very far away, but it's important to think about how you would feel if this occurred in your country, whether that's The UK, Australia, India is getting close with some authoritarian measures or, you know, whether it happened in the US, what would you do? Telephone, internet access, all suspended. The stock market, the banks, they were closed. There were long lines outside of ATMs because people were rushing 
to get hard currency. Uh, people ran to the markets to stock up on food and supplies. People were panicking, and their panic proved to be correct. Uh, the public responded with a number of peaceful protests, but on February 20th, the first official deaths occurred. Two unarmed protesters were killed by security forces. One of those was a 16-year-old boy. Uh, there was a general strike then on February 22nd. Millions of people left their jobs, took to the street, and then they tried to fight back financially. This uh, civil disobedience movement crippled the banking system, so it was tougher for the military to get stuff done. But then the military became more violent, uh, and, and that trend increases. Uh, the military at this point has killed more than 600 people, and according to international monitoring agencies, they've assaulted, detained, or tortured thousands of others. And now one of the one of the um, other evolutions people are seeing is these peaceful protesters are mobilizing into what some journalists are describing a guerrilla force. So remember when we talked about the farm protest, uh, a lot of the protesters were building barricades to protect themselves. This is happening in Myanmar, but they're they're not traveling to cities to build these barricades. They're building barricades around their own neighborhoods and they're learning how to make smoke bombs, they're training in basic forest warfare. This is an untenable, unsustainable situation, and it could have regional ramifications. It's already going to have regional ramifications. I mean, you have to imagine the larger countries surrounding Myanmar are all very well aware of this situation, and pretty pretty spooked and rightly so. I mean, the military, like they began a secret trial on February 16th for Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who to further complicate her legacy, by the way, uh, I think we should mention she did win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 before right. the Rohingya stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's super interesting um, to see someone kind of devolve in this way. And and, and I'm, there's two sides to it all, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But yeah, the it, I mean, is she directly responsible for human rights violations after being such a proponent for human rights? Or is it more just like by association? I'm a little uh, unclear on that aspect of her. Yeah. So it goes back to 2017. Uh, people wanted her Nobel Prize to be revoked because mm. she was silent about the persecution of the Rohingya people in the country. But then she went on to say that she did not believe it was ethnic cleansing. Uh, she said there was a climate of fear uh, and that there was a worldwide perception about global Muslim power that was affecting the military's position. So yeah, it gets it gets complicated. Uh, the Economist famously said her halo has even slipped among foreign human rights lobbyists, disappointed at her failure to make a clear stand on behalf of the Rohingya minority. So it makes you wonder, like, is this a crime of neglect? Is this a crime of or is this an active crime? It'd be a better way to say it. Like, is she making the laws that allow for this persecution? Well, this time the law is definitely not on her side, at least the way the military is thinking about it. Because imagine this, okay? You're the president of a country, mm -hmm. or you're the leader of a country, we should say, a leader of a political party. Military coup occurs, and boom, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. This trial is bonkers. So she doesn't get any legal representation. So imagine you went from being one of the most powerful people in your country to having a secret trial, your lawyer is not told that the trial has started. This trial is believed to take up to a year, but we have no idea. Like the, the reason that she is on trial, the crime she's accused of has nothing to do with uh, human rights violations. It's actually, she is accused of violating import restrictions because military forces, when they went into her compound, they found walkie-talkies. Uh, she's also in trouble for having, for interacting with a crowd during the pandemic. 
And that's a charge that hadn't been publicly disclosed before. So we still don't know. If you wanted to be really cynical and Machiavellian about it, you could say that maybe the military is just looking for an excuse to keep her jammed up for that year of uh, military rule. Right now, the Army Chief Senior General Min Ong Hlaung is the is sort of the active ruler of the country. He was supposed to kind of age out or retire this summer, but he's entrenched now. There's there's a possibility for him to become a strong man because he also has a network based on a lot of really profitable family businesses. And now if he retires, they might not be able to make as much of a vig. So he's probably staying on for a while, even though he is a business tycoon, a senior military official, and now the ruler of the country. And there was always, I don't know, I mean, you've seen the stories before where the military intervenes in, in a, a country's state-level affairs. It's always a very dicey situation. It's never, well, it's usually not supposed to be permanent, the way it's phrased. But at this point, I have to wonder, my question for you, Noel, is do you think there's foreign involvement in this coup? Do you think, for instance, another regional power broker is um, aiding the military? Or like, what prompted this? I don't know, man. That's a good question. I guess the thing to look for would be who, how, who, who is benefiting from this unrest? Like, is is it uh, regionally destabilizing in a way that benefits any any other governments or or you know entities? Yeah, that's that's it. That's a good that's a good way to look at it. Qui bono? Who benefits? Uh, follow the money, right? The money may be drying up as well because the EU and some other international players are sanctioning Myanmar's leaders uh, in an attempt to depower them, essentially. But it's funny because the, well, when I say funny, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation, just to be clear. But uh, one thing I thought was interesting is that the leaders of Myanmar officially warned the world not to call this a coup. That's one of the first things they said internationally. They said, look, if you are describing this state of emergency, don't call it a coup. We're doing the right thing. We're doing legal things. And here's their little add-on. And if you use incorrect words to describe this state of emergency, that could be seen as an act of instigation. <laughs> it could be breaking the law. So be very careful what you say. Luckily, our podcast is not based in Myanmar at this point. Yeah, it's sort of like the uh, geopolitical equivalent of calling a water pipe a bong in a tobacco store and being asked to leave. <laughs> right, right, right. But leaving to jail and yeah. probably get tortured. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, I had to say it out loud, Ben. Don't call it a coup. We've been here for years. <laughs> right, just, I, right. Yeah. Uh, and and shout out to uh, shout out to some of my favorite hip hop groups, the Coup, and of course Mighty Haiku, based here in Atlanta. Uh, neither of whom are, to my knowledge, involved in overthrowing democratically elected governments. Just throwing down sweet bars. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. That's where their passion is. But what about China's passion? I mean, that's the that's the specter, right, cast over this entire affair. The military has conspired to overthrow an elected government. China has to know about it, right? China has been kind of playing both sides for a long time. They've got good relationships with the military hierarchy. They've got good relationships with the Democratic Party there. They're just, you know, they're playing the long game and their official statement was pretty interesting. It, it's, well, I'll read it. I'll share it with you. And then I want to get everybody's take. So Wang Wenbin, who is the a spokesman for the foreign ministry of China, said, China and Myanmar are friendly neighbors. We hope that all parties will properly handle their differences under the constitution and legal framework to maintain political and social stability. That is a very polite way to say, not our problem, in my opinion. What do you think? 
Sounds about right. They're, they're just not. They said this is uh, this is something uh, a problem you will work out in your own house more or less. The issue here is that when they've instituted that one year period, we don't know how far we don't know how far we'll go with one year. You know what I mean? Like, will it what what will happen after that year? Will there be another election that maybe has results the military feels are more accurate or, you know, also favor them a little bit more? Or will they say the state of emergency continues? And for the good of the country, for the greater good, we have to continue uh, military rule. It's just, it's so rare for a group that takes power in this way to voluntarily give it up. You know what I mean? It's, it's very dangerous water. The other big regional player in the mix here, the other two big ones are Japan and India. India is the world's largest democracy. Uh, Japan also is worried that this shift or this return to authoritarian military rule is going to sway Myanmar away from democratic nations and toward what they call the League of China. And this has been something Japan was uh, very frightened about for a long, long time because they didn't want Myanmar to become a vassal state of China. They thought it would be a danger to the country's prospects for democracy. And Japan went out of their way to be friendly here. Um, you know, we mentioned 2011. That's where we see democracy come into power. The very next year, Japan canceled a ton of Myanmar's debt. And then they gave them another loan to help them clear out their debts with the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank. They were trying to make like a, a fresh start for the country. And at this point, it's an ongoing story, but it's a story I feel like more people should be aware of because we're going to hear more about it. Um, I, I don't know what the predictions will be. Uh, I hope that uh, you know the politicians who have been locked up, uh, even if even if some of them were corrupt, I, I hope that they are safe in incarceration and they don't get you know, a Russian style illness or something like that. I hope an accident doesn't occur to them. But this this is unsustainable. And because the country is so poor, it doesn't get as much attention as it should. So at this point, we're gonna we're gonna call it a day. We'll be back with more strange news next week. Want to hear from you. Who are your favorite prominent UFO enthusiasts? And do you have family in Myanmar, or have you visited the country? What is your take? Uh, if you are listening to this show and you are in the country right now, uh, please be safe. We would love to hear from you. We try to make it easy to find us online. You can find us on the internet in multiple places. Uh, we are Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook, Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. You can also give us a call at our Hotline? People still call them a hotline? Uh, 1-833-STDWYTK. You got three minutes to leave a message. Uh, and if you're cool with it, please let us know. We might just feature it on one of our weekly listener mail episodes. And please let us know what to call you and all that. And while you're on the internet, why don't you do us a solid and leave us a nice iTunes review? Or what do they call it these days? Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really does help um, you know, people discover the show. And it also supplants some of the, the trolley reviews that are on there that we, you know, that hurt our feelings very much. Um, I'm just kidding. We're tough as nails. But yeah, seriously, do that thing. And Ben, if I'm not mistaken, there's also another way people can get in touch with us if they don't want to do any of that stuff. They can send us a good old-fashioned email. Where we are, conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.